Welcome back to the Tapes Archive Podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have the Reverend Alex Van Halen. At the time of this interview in 1995, Alex was 42 years old and was promoting an upcoming Van Halen concert in British Columbia, Canada. In the interview, Alex talks about growing up and playing with his brother, Eddie Van Halen, for unlawful carnal knowledge producer Bruce Fairburn and the best thing about being in Van Halen. The interview is conducted by a new tape archive contributor, Canadian music journalist and author Steve Newton. During his four decades as a freelance music writer, he has interviewed everyone from ACDC to ZZ Top. We highly recommend that you head over to his Patreon page, link in the description, and check out over 400 of his exclusive interviews. For only five bucks, you get full access. We are not paid for this endorsement. We just truly feel it's money well spent. For zero money, you can head over to Newton's website, earofnewt.com, where he has posted more than 3,000 of his interviews, album reviews, concert reviews, and horror movie reviews. A big thanks to Steve Newton for allowing us to share this very rare interview with you. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. Hello, man. Steve, please. Yeah, that's me. Steve, this is Alex. Hey, Alex, how you doing? Good, how you doing? I'm pretty good. Where are you calling from? Uh, I'm calling from Boston. Oh, you been there tonight? Yeah. Excellent. Played here last night, and uh, figured we'd do two. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I've been, I've been a fan of the band uh, since day one, so it's nice to be able to finally have an interview. Ah, uh, great. I'd like to... Uh, Start a little bit in the early days, uh, Alex, and, and work up to the present day and, and the new albums. First off, I was I was wondering what what your earliest memories of, of playing with your brother Eddie, Eddie are. Were you guys re- really young when you started jamming? Or? Yeah, uh, you know, I think music is one of those things that uh, it's it's in your blood. I think even before we played an instrument, we were drawn to uh, the marches that my dad my dad was in the Air Force band. He would bring the records home. Part of the reason he was in the Air Force band is because he was, he was a jazz player and find work in Holland. You know, we lived in Holland and there was no place to find work. You know, the uh, big band era was over and uh, small jazz bands just couldn't make a living to support a family of four. He went into the Air Force and joined the Air Force band to bring home those records. And Ed and I would sit there and march around the table just for hours on end, you know, and, and uh, you kind of realize that music can be hypnotic. It can do all kinds of things to you. You know, it, it can change your perspective on time and all that. That's how Ed and I, I think, I mean, this, that's what I can remember. We started playing piano when we were six years old, and the idea was, I think my mom had this uh, crazy idea that we should be concert pianists. So we did that for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. Of course, in between, by the time I was about 11, I picked up the guitar, and Ed had a drum set. And after about a week or two, we decided to change. I didn't care for the guitar, and Ed didn't care for the drums. So that was that. Yeah. After the military, what sort of bands did you guys first try to emulate? Uh, the first one was bands like The Ventures, uh, anything that was that you could play with guitar and drums. Didn't have a bass player at the time. We kind of be a novelty act. My dad was, uh, he would play clubs and we would just be kind of like a half an hour intermission. You know, it was great. Who were your uh, personal drum gods back then? I really latched on to uh, Ginger Baker. And of course, uh, um, well, I got some. I think I'm having a brain fart. Here. <laughs> uh, John Bonham, Keith Moon. I was really into stylistic people—people people who had a unique style that you could hear 
no matter what they did, is you could instantly recognize the way they played. Of course, you know, technique was always important, but I preferred Louis Belson to Buddy Rich. That was my personal preference. I preferred Philly Joe Jones to, to some of the other people. But, you know, I think I always had an open mind. I mean, there's, my dad used to tell me, you should listen to everybody, because you can always learn something. But my, my, my first, the one I, I really... Uh, whose style and, and the feel and how he fit in with the band who I liked was uh, Ginger Baker. He made music on his drums, you know? Mm-hmm. Up till then, I think drums were more or less just there to keep time, and it didn't yeah. really matter who the hell was back there. So, did you take any drum lessons yourself, or did you just start, start banging away? Uh, I took a couple of lessons yeah. here and there, but I think, for me, it was just important to be in the middle of, of the energy of playing with mm-hmm. uh, music in front of people. You know, yeah. By the time I was 13, I was playing full-time my dad's jazz band in clubs around the LA area and uh, it taught me firsthand you know the power of music you see people coming in in a certain state of mind you know and by the time the evening's over everything's changed I, you know I'm sure that the alcohol has something to do with it as well but nonetheless you know this the whole atmosphere of being in a room and the energy level changing from one to another it's, it was very fascinating and it, that, to me, is what music was all about. It's not just the hit songs and the, the production and all that stuff. You know, it's, it's really the, the essence of what music is about. It's really a one-on-one thing, you know, because when you're playing for whether it's 10 people or whether you're playing for a million people, you're only playing for one person at a time. You know, and that's, that's uh, I learned that early on. Was Eddie part of your dad's uh, jazz band? Yeah, he came in from time to time. He played bass. Because the, the, the chord changes were too uh, different from rock and roll. And Ed was just, he was more into the rock and roll thing. But, you know, to make a few bucks, come on, Ed, play bass. <laughs> when did you first figure out that, that Eddie uh, had the makings of, of a guitar legend? It wasn't difficult. You know, I had taken uh, flamenco lessons and all that. And I could yeah. play, I could read and all that. But there was no connection between me and the instrument. It, to me, it was just a piece of wood with metal strings. And if you put your fingers on it this way, it makes this kind of sound. And if you put them this way, it makes this kind of a, a chord. But when Ed picked it up, just instantly, I mean, he just connected with it. It was as if it was meant to be there all along. You know, not only was he articulate and you could, and, and there was feeling, you know, it's something you have to sense when you're there, but uh, I'm trying my best to describe it in words, but, you know, a blind man could see it. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember uh, the first time I heard, I heard Van Halen when, when the first album came out. I was a child of the 70s. Did, did you uh, guys expect to make such a huge impression on, on the rock and roll masses? I don't know, it's difficult to say, because while we were playing, the two gauges that you have to go by, whether what you do is any good, is the fact, number one, do you like it? Do you like it, and are you proud of what you did? And number two, of course, it's, it's easy, is do the people who you're playing this for like it? You know, it doesn't take a genius either in that, in that aspect. And we, you know, we played seven nights a week uh, all over the L.A. club scene. And L.A. is, you know, it's very spread out area. Los Angeles is not just the beach. It's not, it's not the California that people think it is. There are a lot of industrial areas. There are a lot of uh, Hispanic areas. There's just all kinds of different places to play. And we would go within about a 100-mile radius of, of L.A. play that area. That covers a lot of ground. So there's never a problem of finding a place to play. And we just found it no matter where we went. You know, so there were people who liked what we did. So we got to the point where we decided we should just promote our own shows. We would rent a building that would fit about 5,000 people. And, you know, out of our pocket, we'd, we'd get some PA and some lighting. And we'd pack the place. And you know, this was in lieu of, of trying to approach record companies and forcing a tape down their throat because, you know, it, it, Rarely does that work. You know, I've seen how many tapes these people receive, and it, it doesn't doesn't work. <laughs> You're better off trying to win the lottery, you know? And also, at that time, punk rock was huge. And 
record companies didn't want to have anything to do with the kind of music that we were making. We figured, well, you know, we'll just raise a stink our own way, and he can't help but notice. We were very lucky, you know, that Ted Templeman and Mo Austin from Warner Brothers came in, and, and uh, uh, they saw us one night. We were playing at a, somewhere in Hollywood. The name of the club was the Starwood. It's not there anymore. Uh, we were playing there on the 99-cent beer night. It was a rainy Tuesday evening, and, you know, you can get in, and all the beer you can drink for 99 cents, and still, there were only, like, 15 people in the joint. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Hollywood is not our uh, our niche. But nonetheless, you know, we musician, you, you play. It doesn't matter. You, you go for it. It happened to be that uh, Mo Austin and uh, Ted Templeman were there. And they're on, as they say. The rest was history. I was wondering what, what your uh, favorite album of, of the David Lee Roth period was, uh, if, you, if you had one uh, from then. Uh, I think all of them. I can tell you the least favorite one really was Diver Down. And that's only because there started to be a lot of conflict within the band. Roth had one idea. He wanted to do cover songs because he wanted a hit single, and mm -hmm. he wanted to play our music. I mean, Ed had so many songs that were just, you know, were incredible. And, and you know, I guess out of what you would call mutual respect, we decided, well, if that's really what you want to do, then we'll do that. But, you know, you can't undo the past. It doesn't really matter. All I know is that we, we did what we felt was the right thing to do. We put in 110%. Ed wrote, you know, Ed has always written uh, the music. I don't dissect it into the Roth era and then yeah. the Sammy era. I really don't. Uh -huh. Because of the uh, the essence and the core and the heart of this band is still the same. And I think when Sammy joined it, it finally became complete, as yeah. opposed to being Roth and a band. or That's how he saw it anyway. But I think with Sammy, it finally became complete. So uh -huh. it, and, and it just... I can't describe what, what kind of energy there is when you have four people making music, even though everybody has a different way of doing things, when it all comes together, that everybody's happy with it. So anybody who's in the band knows that feeling. That's part of the reason why we do these things. <laughs> you know? Uh, were you aware of, of Sammy Hager ever since uh, the debut Montrose album? Oh, yeah, we used to play his stuff in the clubs. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, Rock Candy. Uh, what was the other one? Uh, Make It Last. Oh, yeah. It's a classic album, that one. And, and did you follow his, his solo career after he left? No, no. Hmm. We ran into a couple of times, you know, we'd, uh, when you do those summer stadium things where they have like 150 bands on. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we ran into Sammy once in a while. But, you know, it's funny. It was before we went in the studio to record our first record, the powers that be, if you will, the people behind the scenes really wanted to have Sammy come in and, and sing with the band. But it didn't work out because Sammy already was established and uh, there was a business side to record companies. Mm. And I guess they felt, right, let's not take a shot on this thing because this, this Van Halen band hasn't been proven and let's not, mm. let's not fuck with it. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's interesting. So I'm giving you a little dirt. Thanks, man. <laughs> I would say uh, the band has evolved musically since Sammy joined, since 5150, yeah. I don't think it's a conscious thing. I think the idea as a musician is you always, you hope to grow because uh, if you don't, if you're always looking back and trying to repeat what you did, it just kind of becomes like a, a smaller and smaller circle, you know, a smaller and smaller spiral. Before you know it, uh, there's nothing left. I, I think, again, fortunately, there, there are four different people in the band and we all have different tastes and different personas, you know, and it shows through our instrument. Mm -hmm. And that always keeps it fresh. I mean, music is in part is the way that, that we, as a band, interpret what's going on around us, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's musically and or lyrically. So the idea, I mean, let's, let's face it, there is no, nothing new under the sun, really, if you want to stop and think about it. You're not going to invent, reinvent an E chord. We're still using the, the same basic tools that everybody else does, which is 12 notes in the scale. That, that's counting all of them, then, you know. <laughs> so I've heard people say there's eight. Well, there's just 12. <laughs>
One for each uh, sign of the Zodiac, something <laughs> like that. A lot of Vancouverites are probably wondering how you came to work with uh, Vancouver's Bruce Fairburn, Alex. After we came back to, well, after uh, From Law for Carnal Knowledge, uh, uh, because, we, you know, we're one of the few bands, I think, that actually do read fan mail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so many people have been asking for a live record. It, it took us a while to put a live record together, and to, to just make a long story short, it was about a two-and-a-half-year tour from the release of mm. Law for Carnal Knowledge until we came back in the studio. And we didn't want to make for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge Part 2. You know, we were very concerned that if Andy was involved, that we would have that again. And besides that, Andy was busy. So, you know, we don't want to produce ourselves. We were involved with it, but to, to take the actual helm, it's a, it's a big mistake. You know, it's, you need a fifth member of the band in that term, in that, that respect, because otherwise it would take forever. There's going to be nobody to really to make decisions in certain areas, because most of them are creative decisions, and in creativity, there is no right and wrong. There's just opinion. Well, I have an opinion, and if you want my opinion, I'll give it to you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's you know what I mean. I mean, the four of us are like that. I mean, there you go, four people sitting there beating the shit out of each other, and I'm I'm kind of over you know over expressing it. So uh, we talked about five or six different quote unquote producers. Uh, I think it's important to keep in mind the term producer is kind of a vague. It can mean anywhere from a babysitter to a co-writer to a guy who plays almost all the instruments to psychiatrist, you know, the, <laughs> it's, just, it's so vague, like I said. How'd you pick Bruce? Well, after talking about five or six different people, Bruce, you know, when he first walked in the room, we didn't really discuss much of anything. One of the first things he asked is, well, let's hear the music. And he said, shit, what a novel idea. You know, all these other people that came in and had, had uh, given us a list of their credits and da-da-da, and how they thought of the old records, and oh yeah, I love this song. You know, again, that's a concept. You keep hammering on the old stuff, all you're going to do is repeat it. We don't want to repeat it, you know? At least not on purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. At least not uh, not consciously. So anyway, so yeah, after Bruce said that, we said, well, shit, let's go. As it turned out, for us, I, you know, the bottom line is you really have to go by instinct. You have to go by, by your heart. When people come talk to you about wanting to produce the record you know the reality of it is it is part of a sales pitch but there's something about bruce that just he's just a, a very warm human being and of course later on we find out he's, he's just he is he's an incredible human being you know way beyond just his musical and and uh production uh capabilities mm-hmm. he's an incredible guy just about uh, th- three more questions for you Alex. i was wondering uh, how much input you have personally in, in the writing of the tunes well that depends some songs are just little spurts of ideas that Ed just will throw out. See, we spend a lot of time just dicking around the studio, and some of the best times are when Ed isn't even thinking, and he's just noodling around with it, and if I throw some kind of a drum thing to it, it just starts a fire, so to speak, that kind of spreads. But I don't actually consciously sit down with the guitar and say, okay, here, check this out, do this, do that, or because I don't play guitar. The only song I ever did have a, uh, was a keyboard tune called Feel So Good. I just had a, I had that little piece on the, on the, on the keyboard. But, no, it's, you know, it's, again, it's, a, it's a, uh, a chemistry and electricity that happens. One thing just fires up something else. There's a reason why certain people work well together and others don't. It's not for us. It's not a business. The reason you go in the studio is not to make a record. The reason is to go make music. And then while you're making it, it's going to be recorded. Hey, and then at the end, okay, then it's going to be put together in a record. Mm-hmm. You know, this may sound strange, but philosophically, it's a very different way of looking at it. That way, you're not sitting there going, well, we have 15 more days, we need two tunes, and then we have our record. You know, that to me is ridiculous. Of course, sometimes it can turn on you because it's for unlawful coronavirus, it took a year to record. But that's just the way it was. 
It's been almost two two decades now for the band. I was wondering how, how much longer do you expect Van Halen to continue rocking? Well, like I said, I ain't going to look back, so two decades really doesn't mean much to anything. Yeah, right? I know today we're going to play, <laughs> and we're, today we're going to play really good, because <laughs> last night we played great, so we better play better than that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> how old are you now, Alex? Uh, somewhere between 30 and 150. <laughs> Just put it this way, I'm a hell of a lot younger than Mick. <laughs> Sean Alex, I was just wondering, uh, what's the best thing about being in Van Halen? I think the people we play for. I really do. It's, we've said before that uh, we're playing for 10,000 of our closest friends and all that, you know, mm -hmm. but I think it's come to the point where it really is like that. We've done this thing with U, uh, USA Harvest where we collect food. We ask the audience to bring some food. Our kudos go out to the audience because they're the ones who are doing it. We're just mm -hmm. the catalyst. But so far, we've collected over 850,000 pounds of food. It just goes right back into the individual city. I think Ray might... Do you know Ray? Uh, no. Our manager? No, I don't, no. Oh, fellow Canadian. Oh, really? He rides Rush. Oh, Rush, right, yeah. okay. I think he's trying to do something. I, I don't know if, if the harvest thing is in Canada, but uh, anyway, it's one of those periphery things, you know, that, that had we not been in his position, we would have never been able to be part of it. And, you know, there is no who did this, who did that. The fact is, all the volunteers and all these people who make this project work are feeding people. We've had over about uh, a million and a half people so far. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys when you uh, come out to Vancouver here on September 13th. I'm looking forward to being there. I hope yeah. it's sunny. I think it will be. Yeah, call the man upstairs say, excuse me, but uh, can you spare a sunny day on the... Yeah. <laughs> I'll see what I can do, Alex. Okay. I really appreciate uh, you giving me a really good interview. All right. So, uh, did you go... I forgot I should have asked you. Was this on tape or you just jotting his down? No, I'm taping. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should have let you know first, thing. Eh? Well, I just, yeah, you know, I burned on me, and I'm just fucking yakking away here, and then, uh, before you know, just, you've got two notes. Well, Alex. I appreciate it, man. It's going to be a good story. Thanks a lot, okay. Alex. Uh, remember the name Scotty Ross, you know, and if you're going to come to the gig, just, uh... I'll be, I'll be there for sure. I'm doing the uh, review. Okay, well, he'll set you up with whatever you need. Scotty Ross, eh? Yeah. How do we get a hold of him? How? Yeah. The production, to the building, oh, okay. to, uh, All right. you know, whatever, to just... If you happen to walk down the street anywhere near the facility and say, where's Scotty Ross, they'll help you. Oh, thanks, Alex. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's everything. <laughs> Sounds good. Maybe uh, maybe get back and have a beer with you or something. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Alex. All right. Have see. a good gig tonight, and uh, see you later. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember, you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.